Hi there. My name is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies, and I'm also the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Today, we're talking with Lauren Coodley. She's an emeritus professor from Napa Community College in California, and she's the author of, among other books, Upton Sinclair, California Socialist, Celebrity Intellectual, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2013. Uh, Everybody out there with the pulse knows the name Upton Sinclair. If you took an American history class at some point in your life, you know that he's the author of The Jungle and one of the foremost muckraking journalists of the late progressive era in the United States. But uh, Upton Sinclair was a lot more than that. Uh, He was, as the subtitle says, he was a socialist. He was an intellectual. He was an author of many, many uh, more books than The Jungle. He was involved in Hollywood. He wrote plays. And he lived a long and very interesting life. So uh, this little biography is is very timely and very interesting. So Lauren Coodley, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for your interest in my work. You bet. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write about Upton Sinclair? Okay. Um, well, I was began teaching in the late 70s, and um, at that point, uh, the field of women's history was kind of in the process of being invented, and I did not at that time even have a degree in history, but the community college was flexible enough to allow me to develop uh, the first course in women's history in the late uh, oh. 70s. I eventually went on to get a master's in history about 20 years later. Uh, but while I, during those 30 or 35 years that I taught, um, you know, what, what I was developing as an early American women's history course, um, you know, I had a lot of young men in the class who were uh, very um, enthusiastic participants, and occasionally one of them would say wistfully, well, you know, where are the interesting men that we've never learned about? <laughs> These women are great, but, like, why do we always hear just about the same men in U.S. history? Well, you know, are there other kinds of heroes, other kinds of people that we could look to as models? Because they saw the young women in the class really being very inspired by you know, some of the unknown women, who ironically, all the same women that I taught about in 20th century women's history were the, turned out to be personal friends with Upton Sinclair, something that I (laughs) had no idea at the time that, you know, I started this research. So anyway, um, I got that question. It was pretty poignant. I started a file on men who were involved in the struggle for equal rights that I would occasionally drop things in the file. And, um, Somewhere in the early 90s, I uh, came across a movie on Upton Sinclair's campaign for governor in California, what was called the Epic Campaign to End end Poverty in California. There is a wonderful film that was made about it in the um, early 90s, and and a book as well, Campaign of the Century by Greg Mitchell. So then I had this big aha moment um, because I was just starting to, uh, you know, prepare to go back to school to get my master's in history. And to uh, teach California history, and I thought, I was born here, I went to school here, and I never (laughs) heard about this campaign. Really? How is it that I never heard about Upton Sinclair in California? I I knew what most people knew. He wrote The Jungle, period. So I started um, trying to figure this out, and I discovered there hadn't been a biography since 1975, 
and I wrote my master's thesis as an argument for why there should be a new biography. So all the ingredients were in place in 1995 when I finished my master's thesis. In other words, I knew what should be in the biography. I didn't have the chance to write it until I retired um, in mm-hmm. 2010. But I, I laid all the groundwork and did all the research um, as part of my um, master's thesis. I oh, hope that wow. helps. That's, that, no, that's, that's, it's, it's always interesting to hear the trajectory yeah. that somebody takes Yeah, uh, you know, towards every time I tell the story a little differently, but this is the story sure. for today. Um, you know, one of the things, and you kind of alluded to this in your, in your explanation for how you came upon Upton Sinclair, and that was that Upton, your book really makes clear that Upton Sinclair was somebody who was, uh, very comfortable in the, in the, in the company of women, very influenced by women, not afraid to admit that he was influenced by women. Uh, do you think, and, and, and also that he was a, uh, an active feminist, uh, an act, activist in the women's rights movement. Did being identified with uh, so-called women's causes, not only feminism, but also uh, prohibition and temperance, did it hurt him in his other uh, advocacies? That's such a perceptive question. I think it laid the groundwork for the caricature of him that began to be developed, as you know, if you read my book, um, the whole thing about red-blooded men and the, and the rhetoric oh, yeah. that was um, introduced by actually Theodore Roosevelt and then carried forth by um, the publisher of the uh, L.A. Times, Otis Chandler. I, right. I, I'm sure you've seen that that mm-hmm. uh, that quote, that incredible quote about this effeminate, you know, man with his high voice, you know, speaking to women, this perverted creature. Yeah. It it gave the people who already wanted to go after him a lot of ammunition. I mean, it's very akin to the way that, um, you know, Democratic politicians always seem to get, you know, they, they there's what they call the wimp factor. They get feminized. Mm-hmm. They get ridiculed for not being masculine enough. You know, even in today where, where Chris Christie's being defended um, by some people on Fox who say, you know, he's a he-man and America doesn't want he-men anymore. I don't know if you know that, but that's I am always watching <laughs> sure. for these kind of discourses. But so, in what ways do you think it, it did he was he able to able to overcome that um, in his life? I mean, one of the uh, striking images, for example, of in your in your book is uh, is of Upton Sinclair playing tennis. It seems like a pretty athletic guy, at least in that picture. Was he able to uh, rebut that charge that he was some kind of unmanly man? Oh, yeah. I don't think it ever bothered him at all. He probably thought it was funny. Um, What distressed me was that it persisted in um, biographical and uh, bibliographical references to him um, posthumously. After he died, um, I found that there was this thread of derision and contempt. I mean, he was listed in the book called Zanies uh, as, you know, some kind of (laughs) almost like a circus freak. And uh, that was kind of why I wanted to reclaim him, because I felt with the new histories of masculinity, there were ways to um, understand him that that hadn't been available to previous biographers. Mm -hmm. I tried to do that without using a lot of jargon in my book. Yeah, we appreciate it, um, because you could have easily done that. Yeah. Um, he had an interesting childhood. Uh, grew up in a, or spent his early years in a boarding house in, mm-hmm. in Baltimore. Uh, had a very ambivalent, and you can 
maybe uh, expand on that uh, ambivalent relationship with his father. Anyway, how did growing up in a Baltimore boarding house uh, influence him? You know, what I discovered when I was doing the research for this book, because I hadn't researched his childhood when I did my master's thesis in the 90s, I really had to immerse myself in Baltimore history, for example, which I realized was the history of the post-Civil War period, which I realized was about the failure of the Confederacy and the effect that it had on people like his parents. And I saw from some of your work that that's kind of your field, so I'm sure... Mm -hmm you would have a lot more to say about it than me, but I tried my best to understand it. Um, so I'd say that Baltimore was in a very um, particular situation in relationship to the post-Civil War period. Um, but as he would say, poverty and alcoholism were the dominant uh, aspects of his childhood. Um, yeah. He was very much like many children of alcoholics um, who, you know, today would be in a, you know, a, the um, Al-Anon, you know, they would be they would be going to Al-Anon meetings and getting support from other uh, children of alcoholics. Um, such a thing didn't exist. In fact, people in the 19th century were more likely to construct a political analysis and become politically active rather than um, go to support groups like people do today. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he he um, he was influenced by living in a in a you know uh, among a group of people who had been very sympathetic to the Confederacy, but I would say that um, the dominant influence was uh, really, I think he adored his father, but seeing his father, you know, drink away the family savings and having to be evicted over and over again and living in the same room as his parents yeah, and not having siblings probably because of all this um, was, was, he says it was uh, the most dominant experience of his life, alcohol. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, eventually, as you point out, he moves to New York. Um, again, it's sort of a one-room uh, tenement with his parents. Um, it seems to me, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, he had a very uh, – uh, how should I say this? I'm not sure that he was as so much educated as he was self-educated. For example, you suggest that you know uh, he went to Columbia. Uh, but he took a very unconventional track of study at Columbia. He, he kind of saw it as almost like a buffet line, sort of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, didn't really finish many classes. Uh, what do you think he got out of his formal education, and um, how did it shape him, uh, positively or negatively? Well, you know, that's such a good question, and I love speaking to somebody who's read the book so thoughtfully as you have. I will say that of all the things I identify with Upton Sinclair, it's probably his experience with higher ed that most expresses, you know, my own take. Um, I went to Berkeley, and, you know, mm -hmm. I sort of also had that buffet cafeteria approach of, you know, popping in and out, never quite finding what I was looking for in, in mm -hmm. class, um, educating myself on my own. I dropped out of college and then went back. Um, he um, had a very, very similar experience. Um, he taught himself several languages, which I did not manage to do. But he was, you know, he was, um, should I say, he was really looking for the kind of teacher that he only found in Edward McDowell, his music teacher. Someone yeah. that he mm -hmm. could get a personal mentorship um, and personal inspiration and personal 
attention from, which it really isn't possible at a large university. I was fortunate enough to find a mentor at Berkeley eventually, and that's that's how I finished. And I, I suspect that um, Edward McDowell was like that for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will, I will talk later. You know. Right, and we'll talk later on about his uh, one of his many reforms that Sinclair was interested in was education. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the you know, this book uh, sort of uh, moves back and forth between his uh, personal life, his professional life, his political activism, and so forth, although there was a lot of intersection between those things. And one of the intersections between his personal life and his political activities was uh, his, uh, his first marriage, um, which you suggest really foundered on the issue of, of birth control. And it's something that you know, he became an advocate of. Uh, can you can you just tell the readers, you know, the listeners who haven't read the book about his first marriage and uh, sort of the the the, uh, the, the complex attraction uh, that he and his first wife Meta had, and also their you know their, their problems with you know celibacy and birth control. Yeah, um, it's interesting because. Um his other biographers never really went beyond that first marriage in their analysis of his love life. I, I tried to, um, you know, take his second and his third marriages as well as his, his one documented love affair, you know, look at them as, as, um, fully as, as other biographers had looked at his first marriage. But in any case, his first marriage always intrigues people because his wife was, um, obviously very beautiful, very sexy, they were very young when they got together, about 19 and 20, um, probably both virgins. Um, they were passionately in love. She got pregnant almost immediately. Um, and Upton Sinclair had at that moment decided that he was sick of being a hack writer and that he was mm-hmm. willing to be very poor and write seriously. So it's the terrible, terrible timing that right when he <laughs> was giving up this guaranteed income he had, as you know, he wrote for um, popular fiction, for magazines. He wrote adventure stories. Mm-hmm. He was prolific and it was profitable, but he was sickening by it. I mean, he had dreamed of being like another Shelley and he couldn't bear the, um, you know, the grind of thinking that that's all he would be. It's like, uh, you know, in the 50s, somebody that goes into advertising and then just can't take it anymore by... You know, 1965. <laughs> so for him, he'd had it. He wanted to do serious work, and his wife was pregnant. Um, they had the child. It was a difficult birth. It was a difficult infancy, and he told her that they could not um, continue to have uh, sexual intimacy because they were refused birth control, um, and they really didn't know what um, how to access birth control. This was about 1903. Mm-hmm. It really there wasn't much. And they weren't able to get hold of any. Uh, so um, she, you know, they're living in a little isolated cabin. Um, in, or tents sometimes. Yeah, I mean, tents, they live in in tents. The, on the Thousand <laughs> Islands of New York and sometimes in a cabin in New Jersey. Um, and they they gave way to temptation sometimes. They tried not to. It, it was a lot of uh, bitterness between them. And um, eventually... Um, she took other lovers, I think, before he did. 
eventually they both had other lovers and finally they got a divorce. But it, it was, you're absolutely right. Um, if there had been birth control, they might have stayed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You uh, you referenced one uh, one time when uh, Sinclair walked in, and as you point out, you know, Meta kind of kind of let herself go for for a time, uh, sort yeah. of not she taking was care of herself. Suicidal, the suicidal. Yeah, I mean, yeah. did she actually have a suicide attempt, or did he just kind of walk into her while she was kind of fingering this pistol? And is there was there an attempt, or was there well, was she, she was kind always of, a very self dramatizing woman? Um, she married twice more and, um, I've seen a little bit about the writing that she tried to do. Um, she was a woman who kind of, you know, she was her own drama. Um, she carried a lot of drama with her. She wasn't able to write about it because she was so full of it. So, yeah, I think she was sort of putting on an act. I mean, I think it was, it was semi-serious. But I don't. I don't think she probably would have gone through with it. But you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how did Upton Sinclair become a socialist? Okay. Well, actually, and that happened right before he met Mita. Um, he was trying to figure out. He had always been trying to figure out the the why, the nature of existence. Mm-hmm. And um, he was so troubled by the difference between rich and poor because his his mother's relatives were very wealthy and yet, you know, he saw the way people lived in boarding houses. So he went back and forth. He called it a Cinderella childhood, going back and forth, back and forth. Mm. And like many children of alcoholics, you know, he's trying to look for maybe a theological explanation for the alcoholism, his father's alcoholism. Um, But he, he did kind of give up on organized religion by the time he was about 14 or 15. So he was just searching for meaning. I mean, he found it um, in Emerson and Thoreau and uh, Shelley in the poets. Um, but he also wanted um, a sort of a social explanation of why the world was the way it was. And he was befriended by some young socialists, um, not to be confused with communists. And I, I mm-hmm. assume your, your listeners know that there was a, a very active socialist party in the U.S. in the early 20th century, which uh, advocated um, electoral politics and a more uh, equitable uh, redistribution of wealth. Um, so he, he met a few people. He read some of their work. He went to a dinner party with them. And uh, one of them, George Abbott, gave him enough money to do his first uh, novel, Manassas, his first serious novel, his Civil War novel. So, in a sense, he was befriended by some very um, thoughtful, sincere, and eloquent uh, young men who were socialists. And I think he, um, you know, it all made sense to him. Henry George had laid the foundation for that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And... um, there was just a lot of people trying to figure out uh, amid the Gilded Age uh, wealth and poverty issues. Socialism offered an analysis that was very um, attractive mm-hmm. to um, to many, uh, you know, young people trying to coming of age in that in that early 20th century. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Manassas was his first sort of a serious serious book, and I should observe uh, here that. He wrote uh, just under 80 books. Is that right? Yeah. In his lifetime? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but you know, the, the one that <clears throat> was the first big success and the one that, of course, we know him for is The Jungle. Um, and I wondered if you could address, you know, uh, how he came to get that assignment mm-hmm. and to write the book and also how he responded to the way the book was received. Because, as you point out, he, he, the book was not received in the way that he quite expected. He, I think, uh, and I may be misquoting him here, but he says something like he was aiming for people's hearts and he hit their stomachs instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wondered if you could kind of mm-hmm. take us through the research and the writing and the publication of The Jungle. Yeah, no, I, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I just want to say parenthetically that um, I'm the first historian that's written about him. Or I might be the second. But generally he's been claimed by, you know, as a, as a writer who perhaps had um, wrote too prolifically and not always as well, as mm-hmm. he could have. Um, <laughs> I am really happy that you, as a historian, have chosen to interview me because I think he's best seen as a figure in American history as opposed mm-hmm. to um, trying to rank him among American writers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's done is his- important historically as opposed to um, literarily. So that's well, strange that you say that because. My book. Yeah, I mean, he does appear in every single American history textbook that's been published since, you know, 1940, I think. It's strange that uh, he's been claimed, as you say, by literary critics. Not that there's anything wrong with those people, but you'd think that historians would see him as an appropriate historical subject. Yeah, well, um, he wrote The Jungle not because he was passionately interested in slaughterhouses or uh, food, although though he he was later on very interested in food issues, but he wrote it because he was a socialist and he had been hearing about this unsuccessful strike of slaughterhouse workers. Um, he'd been reading about it in Appeal to Reason, which is like what we would call an underground newspaper, alternative mm-hmm. newspaper of that time. And um, the editor offered him uh, uh, some money to go live there in Chicago and figure out how way to write about life in the slaughterhouse. So he went and lived there for six weeks, left his wife and child in the New Jersey farmhouse, lived in workers' homes, carried a lunch pail. Essentially, he went underground, although they wouldn't have called it that then. You know, he just sort of mm-hmm. fit in. The workers were Eastern European um, he didn't look that different from them, I guess. Maybe he changed his clothes a little bit. Um, but the, the slaughterhouse owners never noticed him. Um, so he was able to make some very, very accurate um, observations. He took tons of notes, went back to the farmhouse, wrote it. Actually, it was serialized as a series of articles for the um, Appeal to Reason. And then um, a couple publishers were interested in publishing it as a novel. And as you know, um, that was a, a tangled story. Some people weren't, you know, said they were interested and then backed off. And eventually, it was mm-hmm. published, um, and it was a huge success. And he said, as you point out, I aimed for their hearts and I hit their stomachs. So he was trying to write the book because he was concerned about um, the treatment of workers in slaughterhouses, particularly. And he knew about that because he'd, again, been reading accounts in Appeal to Reason about this this unsuccessful strike of 1904. Um, He thought people needed to know how badly these workers were treated, um, that it would affect them. Um, 
Jack London said he tried to write the Uncle Tom's Cabin of wage slavery in the jungle. <laughs> so that's what he very consciously was trying to do, because he was really impressed with um, how Harriet Beecher Stowe had affected the conscience of the country um, mm-hmm. with her, you know, with her mm-hmm. work, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, but what it turned out is that because the product was something that was consumed by Americans, for instance, it, was, it wasn't a clothing factory, it was a food factory, yeah. people mostly were appalled at realizing <laughs> what was in what they ate. Yeah. And so yeah. he very much affected people. People uh, forever have felt that meat was safer because of Upton Sinclair, and yet that was really not his intention at all. Mm-hmm. What did you, well, let me step back here. Uh, one of the uh, takeaways of the jungle was the progressive reform movement, things like the Food and Drug Act, and everything people read about in you know American history textbooks regarding the administration of uh, Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft and so forth. Um, as you say, he was a socialist, uh, not a revolutionary socialist, but you know, someone who was willing to work through the system. What did he think of the way that his book led to progressive reform under the umbrella of capitalism, but not socialist change? Was he disappointed that his book wasn't more of a revolutionary instrument and more of one that promoted reform? Um, I don't think so. I I think that um, although he wished that things had gone farther, I found it fascinating that he thought there should be municipal slaughterhouses, that they should be, in a sense, nationalized or provided by the government so that there could be uh, no profit and uh, that, you know, it's sort of like the argument about the public option in health care. He wanted mm-hmm. uh, it to be run by the government. He thought that, that the food, our food was so important that it shouldn't be a private company that, that was in charge. I, I thought that was a fascinating concept. I'd never thought about that. But I think, you know, he was, um, I think he was, he was probably very, very gratified that some progress was made. And um, I don't think he ever felt um, that his efforts had been in vain or that it was just, you know, a capitalist accommodation. Mm-hmm. I think he just felt like, um, you know, there was <clears throat> such a ferment of people you know, working to make change, whether it was, you know, suffrage or temperance or food safety or public health. You know, there was just a swirl of people working together that did really amazing things in the early 20th century Yeah, that we're still benefiting from. One of the other, uh, and he was involved in many reforms, but uh, since we're talking about food, uh, one of his other interests was in uh, the, pop, uh, the popular health movement. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is an old one. In American history, going back to uh, you know Sylvester Graham mm-hmm. in the first half of the 19th century, and I think you mentioned there's sort of an intersection here with uh, T.C. Boyle's novel. Uh, I'm just losing it right now. I can't remember uh, what the book is called. But uh, the road you know, to Wellville. The road to Wellville. Thank you, uh, and the film, of course. Um, how did uh, Sinclair become interested in, in this movement? And it, what did he recommend, recommend that Americans uh, eat and not eat? Because mm-hmm. this is sort of a, an era in which, you know, it's, it's not exactly pre-scientific, but uh, you know, the, the science of nutrition was, was kind of 
in its infancy at this point. And where did he pick off from where other reformers had had, had begun? Well, that's a great question, and um, you know, I find it one of the ways in which Sinclair, I think, is incredibly um, either prophetic or relevant today because um, there's so much attention to food studies, food history, and the politics of food today. Um, it's almost reminiscent of back then. I mean, um, people who were vegans in that era were um, were common, right? Or people who were doing um, paleo diets, like people are today, were common. Um, people were experimenting with the connections between, you know, health and diet. Uh, there were many kinds of experimental um, projects, like uh, Battle Creek Sanitarium that was run by uh, William Kellogg, and that's where, of course, he met his uh, second wife, um, Mary Craig. Um, he tried a ton of diets over the years. He, he wrote a book called The Book of Life in 1920 to try to help his readers understand how to live. Um, he wrote an article called My Life and Diet, which I uh, reprinted in my earlier book. I don't know if you know, I, I edited a collection of Upton Sinclair's writings um, mm-hmm. published by Heyday. So his conclusion about diet was not to be obsessed with it, but to find out what worked for you. I think he was very, um, you know, non-judgmental. He tried a lot of odd things. Uh, by the end of his life, he was eating <laughs> rice and fruit as you know from my book, and he was a vegetarian by the end. But he tried, you know, all meat diets. He tried, you know, the Fletcher system, which was that you chew, chew, chew for a really long time. (laughs) Um, Okay, so why did he do all this? Because he had ill health as a child. Mm -hmm. Like many children who grow up in a dysfunctional household, he probably somaticized the problems and always had a stomach ache. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he had what they called, you know, delicate digestion. Right. So um, he was on a quest as a young man to figure out how to eat so that he could be productive, not in pain, not have headaches, not have stomach aches, you know. And, and it was a very, you know, practical investigation for him. And then he wanted to share that with um, the, you know, his readers. Yeah. And he, uh, he, he, uh was fairly he he really was uh, lived his convictions i mean as you mentioned he he got under a lot of pre- a lot of pressure from uh, fellow reformers fellow socialists you know people like h l Mencken mm-hmm. who kind of made fun of, kind of made fun of him uh-huh. for you know not not having a drink you know yep. loosen up and uh and he wouldn't do it um so he he seemed to be somebody who really you know was willing to be you know, he had a th- pretty thick skin, I guess is what I'm saying. He was willing to be called a flake, to be made fun of, but, you know, not to give in. Yeah. Um, I think that his, you know, his abstinence is really only understandable when we think of the way that children of drug addicts or alcoholics, you know, are in our world. I mean, not to use presentism, but we know people, all of us, who have experienced the worst aspects of, you know, addiction in their parents and who are just adamant about, you know, being sober because of that. So I don't think he's, you know, I don't, <clears throat> for some reason, um, people like Mencken just didn't get it, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, maybe it's because we, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has developed, you know, in the 30s, and we now have a culture, a way of talking about addiction that's really different than what um, was common back then. Yeah. I think they probably thought then it was more of a character flaw than an illness. It seems that way, yeah. Yeah. 
So let's talk about um, his move to California. Okay. Um, because, you know, California is in the subtitle of this book. So uh, you, you at least identify him as a Californian. Why did he move to Southern California? And uh, I guess three questions. Why did he move? Why did he love it so much? And something that struck me, why did he hang out with so many rich people? Um, I, I was really shocked by that as a socialist mm-hmm. when, he's, when he's hanging out with Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Henry Ford just, was, you know, was quite an enlightened guy when they were friends. I mean, Henry Ford sent a peace ship over to try to stop World War One. You know, Henry Ford was... Well, we'll talk about World War One yeah. because that's interesting, too. Yeah. But why don't you talk about his... His, his, his uh, move to California? Uh, to care becoming a Californian. Okay, well, I'm just going to tell you and your listeners that I didn't want this title. I wanted it to be Upton Sinclair Alive. Honestly, that was the title oh. that I chose for my book. But my publishers um, had a different idea for the title. Yeah, we don't we don't get to choose our titles. No, I mean, people don't know that, but I didn't choose my title either. Yeah. Even though the the title that my book was chosen was better than the one I had. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's probably true for mine as well. But um, I, I, you know, I already did a book about him in California, so I, you know, I really mm-hmm. felt that it was redundant. But anyway, um, he moved to California very specifically because um, he remarried. There was a custody battle over his son with Mita. Um, his new wife either didn't want to or couldn't have children. So he had been a single parent for some years to um, David. Um, mm-hmm. And his wife, Mary Craig, his new wife seemed to want some distance between, um, you know, the southern, she came, she came up from a Mississippi planter family. Um, she really wanted to leave... Mita, the first wife, the son, her parents, the plantation, all of it. <laughs> you know, they, they want, he, she wanted a new start. He went on his own to Carmel to explore um, the utopian possibilities of Carmel. Um, but in the end, they settled in Pasadena um, because it seemed to him that that was a place where he could be most productive. I think he liked the um, the friendly small town atmosphere that he found in the Pasadena that era. Carmel was a little bit too, oh, you know, a lot of self indulgent artists. I think he mm-hmm. he kind of liked living in a town that was more um, of a regular town. I guess I'd say, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't. Um, it was unique from Los Angeles. It was its own small community in um, the twenties when they right. moved there. Actually, they moved there in about nineteen fifteen sixteen. Yeah, and of course, this is World War One. This mm-hmm. is the World War One era, um, and uh, you know the socialist movement was quite divided over the war, uh, with many, perhaps even most socialists, opposing uh, the the war, including in Europe. You know, European socialists, you know, uh, saw this in sort of uh, Marxist terms as a war of capital against capital. Um, in which you know the proletariat were taking all the bullets. Um, yet Sinclair supported American entry into World War One. Why did he do that? Well, as far as I can understand it, he did it because some of his friends who were in Europe wrote him that this would be a great opportunity to overthrow the aristocracy after the war was over. Um, I quote at least one letter along those lines to him. I, I think two letters that I've seen. Um, 
He also supported it because some of his friends in America thought that it was a good way to um, get the government involved in industry, that there Mm -hmm. would be more regulation once there was a war, and uh, the government could use its powers, you know, as Roosevelt did during World War II, to, you know, integrate factories and have them unionize. And um, John Dewey was was very um, persuasive on that point to Sinclair about World War I. That it would, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of nationalize production. Right. Um, so he got it from both sides. I, I'm kind of shocked <laughs> that he that he chose this side, but he liked the idea of being a pro-war socialist, um, and that's what he was. Did he like the idea? Because are you suggesting there was a kind of personal satisfaction that? You know, he was an iconoclast within American society, yeah, but now exactly. he's an iconoclast within the iconoclast. Exactly. So it even makes him... Okay. He was never right. like a, you know, a really like foot soldier within the socialist movement. Yeah. 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 He, you know, he didn't really go to meetings of the socialist party. He wasn't involved in intra-party debates. He was, you've put it beautifully. Yes, I would agree. Okay. Like sometimes Bill Maher today, who I watch, yeah. loves to take contrarian positions. Right. Against what he would call politically correct, you know, yeah. uh, true orthodoxy. Right. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that happens in this World War One era is that you know, it, it's kind of ironic, given what you just mentioned about his second wife's desire to kind of get away from his uh, eastern roots and his son, is that uh, after the war he spent roughly what, eighteen months uh, with David, his son, mm-hmm. uh, kind of uninterrupted. Um, yet they had a uh, a rocky relationship, an uneasy relationship. Can you talk about what the relationship between David and his father was like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I've been accused of being too much of a fan of Upton Sinclair, not critical enough. So I, um, after studying his life, I would say that the, the one place I would be critical of is in his um, relationship to David, um, because I, you know, I kind of took David's side in it as I looked at it. Um, or I, I just feel that he, he did abandon him too much. Mm-hmm. Um, David, uh, I think, was a reminder of his mother, of Mita. He, he may have looked like his mother, acted like his mother. I think that the Sinclairs in his new marriage really didn't want that reminder. I think Mary Craig really didn't like David. And mm. in that way, he was very influenced to not continue the close relationship he'd had until David was about 12 when he got together with Mary Craig. Um, he, he'd actually had him in a lot of, you know, boarding schools even before he got with Mary Craig. Mm-hmm. Progressive boarding mm-hmm. schools, but nonetheless boarding schools. Um, I think that he, you know, most people feel a tension between, um, you know, writing and being a parent, and, uh, you know, he chose his writing over his parental yeah. identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most interesting, uh, to me, uh, parts of the book was your description of, uh, and again, I think this is something that people probably don't know very much about, if anything, is his uh, his governor's race in 1934, mm-hmm. uh, when he wins the you know, as a socialist, although he repudiates his socialist party membership, joins the Democratic Party, but he won the Democratic nomination for the governorship of California in 1934. And, you know, it wasn't that easy to do. You're right. Right. It's astonishing. He, I think he got more votes than all the other candidates put together. 
um, in a state where the Republicans had enjoyed un, uh, com- complete uh, domination. So there were, obviously the Democrats were dying to get in there, and there were many more mainstream Democrats that really probably thought they should have been the standard bearer rather than Upton Sinclair, the former yeah. socialist. Yeah. Um, now, you're going to help me out here because in my notes I have down that he – the title of his campaign was the EPIC campaign in capitals, EPIC. Mm-hmm. What did that mean? And, and poverty know, in California. Okay. What was his, what was he going to do? What, what was his campaign promise? How was he going to end poverty in California? So he wrote a beautiful book called, um, you know, this is what the future is going to be like once I've won this election. So he painted <laughs> a, a portrait of a, you can really only understand this campaign if you understand what the depression had done to California, the extent of unemployment, the extent of empty uh, factories that were abandoned fields where oranges were being burned as John Steinbeck um, described it so that the cost would be higher. They, you know, they were burning the, uh, the extra crops. Uh, California was, you know, tottering on complete disaster in a way that was unprecedented. Um, so he basically said, we're going to put people in these factories. We're going to put people in these fields. We're going to produce um, what we need. We're going to have a system of barter, somewhat similar to co-ops. We're going to have something called scrip, um, which is something that you know has now been accepted. Um, he proposed many things, which the New Deal later, later did. Mm-hmm. I don't think he... Um, so that... You know, what what he did was, at the most simple, is to say the government will create jobs, which is what, you know, the New Deal did. The government will create jobs. The government will, you know, there's lots of things that need to be fixed in California. We'll, we'll pay you to fix them. If actors need work, we'll pay you to make movies. Um, where was the money going to come from? Well, you know, I guess the usual way, they were going to tax um, profits mm-hmm. much more... Um, <laughs> drastically than had been done up to then, you know, I mean, they were going to probably tax the rich and, um, you know, have a limit on how much money anybody could make. So the very wealthy were very, very threatened by this. And as you know, there was kind of a conspiracy to uh, undermine him um, put together by Louis B. Mayer and the Orange Mm -hmm. Growers Association and the uh, LA Times. And they made a series of scurrilous newsreels that were shown People stood up in the theaters and complained and objected because the, the, um, everything he said was being distorted. They, they'd take comments from uh, characters in his novels and flash <laughs> them on the L.A. Times as though this is what he said. And particularly, he was pilloried for being for free love, which was really ironic because he was the, you know, the most <laughs> faithful of husbands. He specifically had condemned promiscuity among the left and among the writer's community as being very self-destructive. But nonetheless, because it, you know, it was in some of his books and because some of his early writings pre-marriage, before his first marriage, or maybe during it, were um, not condemning or maybe saying that free love was something that should be explored. Anyway, he was really pilloried mm-hmm. with quotes from his books. And he didn't do badly, though, right? I mean, he got, what, 900,000 votes? Yes, Is that right? And I think his opponent got a million? He almost right? won. Yeah. He almost won, um, despite the fact that all the major newspapers were against him. Um, 
you know, you wanted me to talk about his wealthy supporters. I'd really like to do that because Aileen sure. Barnstall, um, an oil heiress, heiress, was one of his main supporters during the uh, campaign. But earlier, yes, he was fascinated with the way that um, wealthy heirs often became humanitarians and sometimes even socialists. People like Gaylord Wilshire in L.A., who, um, you know, founded a uh, socialist mine and produced a socialist newspaper. Um, he wrote about these characters. They were often the heroes of his books, like Oil um, was about, a, you know, a very uh, a young man of wealth who, who learned about the world as looking at through the eyes of being an oil man's son. Um, the Lanny Bud books, the World's End books, were about um, the son of an arms manufacturer so I think he was fascinated with the dilemma of educated people of conscience, especially heirs to great fortunes, mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. what should they do if they saw the world as it was and wanted to change things. So he befriended some of those people and then used them as models for characters in his books. Just as he did with you know World War One, looking around and, and and being aware of the international situation, you know after. Uh, the governor's race failed. He was a witness to the rise of fascism in Europe. Yeah. Um, how did he respond to the rise of Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, and others? He was a lot more concerned about it than most Americans. <laughs> he, he. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because after World War One, he, in a sense, became an isolationist along with the rest of. America. He was bitterly regretted his support of the war, hated the violations of civil liberties that ensued. Um, but with World War II, he, um, he was very, very, very concerned by the late 30s about what was happening. And um, he decided that he, I think it was after Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, and his wife said, um, our world's come to an end. Mm-hmm. And he paced in his garden, uh, came up with this idea that somehow if he could write a book about how the Nazis had come to power, if he could write a book that had a hero that was so irresistible that people would read it, they would just devour <laughs> it like a Harry Potter novel or like a John Grisham novel, and they would be led along so well that they would, you know, in the end, be be dying to fight Hitler because Roosevelt <laughs> really needed a population that was dying to fight Hitler, and he did not mm-hmm. have that in the America of the late 30s. So the first book called World's End was published in 1940. It was a huge bestseller. I think he was very effective in persuading the American population that the right thing to do and the necessary thing to do was to enter the war. Did he ever feel any... I guess guilt is the wrong word, but did he ever feel any chagrin that, in a sense, he was going back to his old original career as a writer of popular fiction, right? And, you know, here he's having this tremendous influence. I mean, it's, it's for one of these books, right, Dragon's Teeth, that he ends up winning the Pulitzer Prize? Yeah, I know I know what you're saying. It's a very um, thoughtful comment that you're making. Um you know, I love these books. I think they're very well written. I wouldn't call them hack writing. But 
you know, they're no, 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 but as a pop, a popular writer, I, I mean, totally, they were, yes, I get your point. Fiction, was, um, I think he probably, uh, you know, once the jungle had so much impact, I guess he didn't feel so bad about writing books that were popular, mm, because mm, okay. you know, writing books that were popular also means that they're well read and they're, you know, they're going to accomplish something. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think that the hack writing was. A different thing. Um, I think he liked being a, a writer of popular fiction very, very much. But he hadn't really found his groove, so to speak, until he did the World's End books. Yeah, they're one of his most significant accomplishments. Absolutely. So who who is Lanny Bud? <laughs> well, anybody who's read the books never forgets Lanny Bud. Um, he's a uh, he starts off when the books start. The first book he's about thirteen, fourteen. Um, as I said, his father is an arms manufacturer. His mother is a um, very beautiful and very sought-after woman in the uh, salons of Europe. So he's privy to all kinds of things. He's kind of like mm-hmm. every man. He's like a Zelig-like character that <laughs> manages to stumble into, you know, Mussolini's mm-hmm. inner circle, Hitler's inner circle. Uh, you know, knows the British fascists, um, meets communists in Italy, in France, Germany, etc. Um, it's sort of, you know, the American in Europe thing, which I know you've explored in your own work. And the Mm -hmm, books are set entirely in Europe. And and I think that's really a fascinating aspect. Um, It's the only things that Sinclair wrote that I can really think of that, you know, weren't American novels. They're all in Europe. And, and, you know, for Americans, this is like a real um, vicarious delight to be seeing this this action (laughs) hero um, who's also very sensitive and has, you know, many love affairs, um, you know, eventually becomes, goes undercover and becomes part of uh, Hitler's inner circle, all the while acting as a spy for Roosevelt. I hope I'm not right. giving too much away. But if you read... <laughs> well, there's a lot of, There's four books. So you yeah, there's 11 novels, and eventually that's where he gets to. And, yeah. um, you know, I think he invented the, the spy uh, drama or reinvented it or... Uh, created a you know the anti-fascist spy novel with this series right i i when i was thinking of his personality i couldn't help but think of the line from you know, forgive me here uh austin powers which is that uh, women want him and men want to be him mm-hmm. uh sounded like what he was like it's very apt anyway a- after the war um and with the advent of the cold war uh sinclair becomes a pretty avid anti-communist uh, what was his orientation towards, you know, American foreign policy in the Cold War era? Well, that's something that I struggle to understand. Very similar to the World War One, where it kind of seems so counterintuitive. You know, having been this staunch socialist his whole life, was he really going to become an anti-communist? Yeah. Um, there's some reasons for it, partly having to do with his experience with uh, Eisenstein and the and the filming of Thunder Over Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, he was vilified by the American Communist Party for the way that that whole misadventure turned out. Um, he was vilified by the American Communist Party for running as a Democrat in the um, governor's race. Mm-hmm. He and his wife felt personally um, they had a lot of animosity toward the American Communist Party. So when the official government policy 
became so anti-communist, I think it was uh, rather easy for them as, at that time, you know, quite elderly people to just kind of slip right into it. Yeah. So he did not defy the McCarthy era um, at all, like you might have expected. But at that point, he was in his 80s. Yeah, yeah. He also, one of the other interesting things about his later years was you suggested he felt, uh, in a sense, vindicated by, uh, you know, the Great Society programs Mm -hmm. and other anti-poverty movements of the late 60s, early 70s, that, you know, even though the United States had not become a socialist country, uh, yet it had realized a lot of his uh, you know, what, what he wanted to see happen. How 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 vindicated do you think he felt, and how satisfied was he in the direction of American society, uh, at least it's in terms of its social welfare direction? Totally satisfied. Uh, not so much civil rights totally in, in the late sixties. I think he was thrilled. You know, it's it's been left to later historians like you and me to rethink the, you know, the, the great society of, of Johnson, of LBJ, and to, um, to realize that that was a very ambitious uh, attempt to try to keep the New Deal going. You know, I mean, when I was mm-hmm. coming of age, we had to kind of had contempt for, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, but, you know, Robert Caro's work has forced me, and I know many other people, to reevaluate his, his success. Uh, right. Sinclair was a huge, a, a huge fan of... Uh, Lyndon Johnson and what he accomplished. He he did feel like major change had happened. He was mm-hmm. not concerned about the direction of American society. That's okay. not to say he wouldn't be appalled by what's happened since. But right. in 1955, well, it seemed pretty good. Well, you kind of anticipate my really my last substantive question for you, and that was, um, you know, uh, I guess one question for any biographer has to be, uh, how is your subject, Upton Sinclair, you know, what do you think, how is he meaningful for us today? I think that um, the issues that we find ourselves confronting, whether they're civil liberties or food safety, um, the existence of labor unions, um, corporatization of higher education and K-12 system for that matter, it's almost surprising how relevant he is. I wouldn't have expected that we would be where we are right now. Um, I think he's really relevant. Okay. So uh, we've taken almost an hour of your time up. So the last thing I'd like to uh, ask you to uh, expand on is, uh, so uh, what's next for you? I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, quite honestly. (laughs) You can't stop here. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I have a lot of ideas, but I don't, I don't have a big current project. Okay. Well, it's nice to have an open horizon then. So the, the world is your oyster. Well, Lauren Coodley, uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us at New Books in American Studies. You're a great interviewer. I really enjoyed so talking to you. Thank you so much. That was our pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. So my name uh, is Dan Kilbride, and uh, we've been talking with Lauren Coodley, the author of Upton Sinclair, California Socialist, Celebrity Intellectual, published in 2013 by the University of Nebraska Press. And if you're on the new book site and you uh, see the little blurb about this interview, you know that there's a small icon of the book. And if you click on it, that'll take you right to the Amazon page. Uh, and we encourage you to buy the book because not only will some of that cash go to Lauren Coodley, but a little bit of it will go to the new book site to keep us running. 
So once again, my name is Dan Kilbride, host of New Books in American Studies, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.